This episode of Navara FM was made possible by your donations, just like everything else we do at Navara Media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month, or whatever you can afford, and help us build people-powered media. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you. Hello and welcome to Navara FM. I'm Eleanor Penny. Science fiction visions of the future are riddled with android butlers and robotic nursemaids, with pneumatic food delivery systems and smart houses that vanish waste into the void without any people having to lift a finger. As technology advances, people across the political spectrum are looking to futures beyond work, where growth and automation deliver us from drudgery. But what about care work? What about the messier, more human tasks of raising children, tending to the sick or elderly, looking after one another? It's a vast and growing sector of the economy and robots have yet to really pick up much slack. So how can we reimagine the future of domestic labor? That's the question that animates a new book by Nick Cernicek and Helen Hester titled After Work, a history of the home and the fight for free time. Nick Cernicek is a lecturer in digital economy at King's College London. He's the author of Platform Capitalism and co-author of Inventing the Future and the Accelerate Manifesto alongside Alex Williams. Helen Hester is a professor of gender, technology and cultural politics at the University of West London and a member of international working group Laboria Cubonics. Her books include Beyond Explicit, Pornography and the Displacement of Sex, Xenofeminism, and Postwork, forthcoming next year. I visited them in the home they share with their three children to talk about labours of love, domestic technologies, and radical experiments in community care. Helen, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming. It's such a pleasure to see you. <laughs> it's lovely to see you both too. So tell me about how this project came to be, because I think it's absolutely fair enough to say that, you know, in the past 10 years, we've seen this real uh, surge in the popularity of anti-work or like post-work, future of work politics, not just within what we can broadly call the left, but generally across a lot of society. And you've both been so influential in the development of these strands of thought. Uh, so what was it like kind of bringing together your different studies into this sort of unified project? Um, should we go to Helen first? Maybe? Yeah, so it it kind of came out of back, in, I think, around 2015-ish, so uh, in a fair few years ago, when Nick was still working on Inventing the Future and sort of rounding that project out. It was a text that, uh, that I was reading and responding to as it was in development. And one thing that that kept occurring to me in the context of of that book and within the wider post-work project more generally was that there was a tendency to focus on certain kinds of work. So um, largely work that was done in factories, offices, uh, building sites, farms. So very, um, well, spaces that had uh, we conventionally think of as being masculinized workspaces and that there was a large 
portion of work that was getting missed out of the conversation uh, or was being sort of gestured towards without really being addressed as a political problem. So uh, care being the most obvious example, the idea being like, well, of course, we don't want to automate care. So it's excluded from a post-work project. Um, So it it ceased being a kind of political problem within the framework of what post-work was doing. So I I did a little uh, lecture at Goldsmiths about this, whereas I was talking about how we might integrate a feminist perspective into post-work politics, concentrating particularly on um, care work, housework, waged and unwaged reproductive labour, but particularly unwaged reproductive labour, which I thought was sort of left out of the discussion altogether. And then I I sort of sketched out some very loose proposals. It was only only a short little thing. And then afterwards, uh, Nick was like, you know what, I think there's there's a project here. And so the the process began. Yeah, so we started writing it. Um, I think I was was going back to the original contract a little while ago. I think we were supposed to finish it in like 2018. Uh, But then we had three children and that sort of delayed the process a little bit. (laughs) Five years later, here we are. So what was that like? Was... um Parenthood something that's shaped your work and your thinking like as you evolved sort of the theses of the project? I mean, I think it it does deepen your your appreciation of certain elements of the time crunch that are involved. There's always kind of this you can know something on an intellectual level without fully understanding the the affective level. So just the sheer uh, relentlessness of thinking, well, this is just this now for at least 18 years like <laughs> ongoing. But I mean, one fortunate thing, given that we hadn't really planned to have children when we planned to, to start this project, is that some of our, the general consensus that we had come to about about this kind of work, the work of care, the work of um, of nurturing children as being a a political problem still kind of held up when we were in it because what would have been really frustrating was to have got halfway through the book had a baby and be like oh no we've got <laughs> we've got this way wrong it's fine, actually. actually it's great <laughs> <laughs> and it is it is great it, there's, there's a lot of joy in it but there is at the same time uh, this 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 sheer amount of work that we did we we understood when we came into the project of both parenthood and the book we knew there would be a lot of work involved but um yeah, fortunately, we went too far off base. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think our intuitions about it all were quite right. Um, I think the other thing we sort of learned beyond our existing intuitions was basically how intermingled the, the labor of parenting is with the, the sort of joy of parenting and how you know it's very difficult, if not impossible, to separate the two out, um, which I think gets played out in the later parts of the book when we start thinking about, well, you know, freely chosen, freely chosen work, what does that mean? Um, and parenting is one of the you know, in the best cases, the the best example of a freely sort of chosen work. Um, so, what does that mean? And, you know, how do you separate out forced labor from uh, freely chosen stuff? I think the other thing that we sort of learned through the process of parenting was just um, actually the, the the utility of technologies. <laughs> um, if, Hands-free interfaces, for instance. So, all of the digital assistants that we have nowadays. I was completely, you know 
didn't know what the purpose of them was for the longest period of time, didn't find them useful. Um, but when you have a baby in your arms and it's sleeping and you know the slightest sort of movement is going to wake the baby, suddenly a hands-free interface is amazing to have. Uh, so things like that, these little moments of like, oh, actually, here's a way in which we can alleviate some of the, uh, the burdens of parenting. Yeah, although our, our oldest is now almost five and so he's getting to the point where um, he will engage with these hand-free interfaces uh, himself. And there's sometimes a slight battle of will. As we're trying to, <laughs> somebody's trying to assert control over the TV, whether it's on or off, for example. And then it's like the hands-free interface makes it much less <laughs> less easy to exert parental domination. <laughs> yeah, Alexa has no diplomatic authority here. It's yeah. an absolute nightmare. But th- so when you talk about the resistance uh, in post-work kind of thinking and also in, I think it's fair to say, society in general to the idea that like care work is something that that can be aided by technology. It always reminds me of the kind of, you know, like robot or dystopian imaginaries, right? When we imagine this tech-enabled utopian future, uh, we can imagine maybe, I don't know, our food being cooked for us by a robot uh, and that being integrated into a positive vision of the future. But then you look at, say, Brave New World, right? And certain kind of reproductive or care work things are commonly understood to be a signal of mm. something fundamentally wrong or cruel or mm. dystopian. So I'm, I'm wondering how you both account for this, the stickiness, the robustness of this kind of domestic realism. Uh, Nick? Yeah, I think in the first place, um, when we talk about care and automation, these are such massive terms. Mm -hmm. Care encompasses so many different activities. Uh, Automation encompasses so many different processes and, you know, forms of mechanization and all sorts of different ways of alleviating um, sort of burdensome work. I think, you know, we need to get away from those broad categories and think more specifically about what do we mean when we're talking about particular processes of caring and particular processes of automating something. Um, There's all sorts of examples that we already have of what we might decide to call automation helping with what we might decide to call care work. Mm -hmm. Uh, So things like, um, you know, putting a child in front of a TV is the automation of childcare, uh, which is something that everybody does. Um, but we don't often think of that when we think about the automation of care work. It's not necessarily the best thing. You know, you don't want your child spending hours and hours in front of a TV, but it is an example that we all have. Um, and then we also might think of like assistive technologies. So technologies which are allowing people simply to, you know, go through their daily lives and, you know, their lives would be immeasurably more difficult without them. Um, that's the automation of a certain amount of care work as well. But we wouldn't want to get rid of assistive technologies. So I think it's really, we have to be much more nuanced about the discussion rather than a knee-jerk reaction against care and automation is just dystopia. Uh, it's, it's more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we cite some studies in the book which indicate that the people who are on uh, the receiving end of care, our are, are surveys suggest that they are quite open to the idea of some parts of those processes of caring being automated. And we have sort of some anecdotal evidence from our, our own conversations with carers that they can clearly identify parts of their own work that they think they would be better off not doing, you know, that would be better for them not to do, would be better for the people in receipt of care not to be subjected to. And so... Um, what, what kind of thing? Well, so I, I tend to think in terms of three categories. So the 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 two sort of um, classic ones are, are high... high uh, 
tech and high touch. So you've got um, these highly technologized processes of caring versus these um, typically lowly paid, very physically demanding um, processes, which are very much involved in, in, in physical touch. So the processes of, of washing and handling and um, generally being in physical proximity. But I think that the that carers tend to think in terms of a third category as well, which is high talk. So the stuff where actually being able to engage in a social relationship with the person that they're caring for, being able to to have the time to talk with them, to and that being a crucial part of caring that gets increasingly um, sliced off as being somehow uh, a luxury that can't be afforded. Mm-hmm. The, you have the the highly technologized processes of of, of medicalized caring. You have the um, the, the touch-driven processes of um, daily caring and long-term care. But the is, is there a way that we can think about using technology to, to minimise the more burdensome aspects of that work, to f- enable people to be in other kinds of caring relation? And I think that's quite useful in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of the stickiness of this dystopian imaginary that nurse bots and care bots mean um, just the eradication of something that's fundamentally human, because it sort of points to the fact that, well, a lot of what we might think of as the more obviously human processes involved in care are what are being kind of pushed away to engage in these sort of mechanized, <laughs> unmechanized, and yet sort of mechanical processes. To, to pick up on, on Nick's example of um, of the TV, you know, being babysat by Uncle Television, right? I think mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I don't know anyone of you know my generation down who has not experienced that to some degree right and in your book you talk about that actually being you know a, a automation for a pleasurable part yeah. of parenting and some of the finer kind of skills like folding laundry or preparing someone's lunch or that kind of thing are less readily automatable so is, is there mm. something in the nature of these forms of work which kind of resist automation in the structure of them or is it is it an economic problem like what are we dealing with here i think it's an economic and a technical problem i mean folding clothes turns out is really really difficult um so you know you you don't have the same pile of clothes in any person's house and you don't have the same pile of clothes um and any you know even in the same house over the course of say a week so you've got all these different clothes you've got all these different pieces that need to be folded up slightly differently um and for a machine to be able to recognize, okay, well, this is a t-shirt and not a set of trousers, uh, you know, it turns out it's incredibly complicated for it to be able to do that with the, you know, robotics and stuff. So it, there is technical hurdles to it. But the other aspect is that there hasn't been a lot of investment in this sort of stuff. You know, what, what um, you know, tech companies are trying to automate is things that uh, involve machine learning, things that involve digital assistance, things that they can sell more products and more services, um, things which they already sort of dominate in as well. Um, and there's not really any question about going to, you know, say a care home and asking the workers there, what would you like us to invest in in terms of technology? You know, no company is doing that um, because it's not di- it's not dictated by the workers, it's dictated by, well, what's, what's profitable, what's potentially, um, you know, can we make money from? So I think that's the sort of economic issue is that, well, the direction of technology, where it's being developed, is not being chosen by the people who are actually receiving the care or giving the care. Um, but then there are these technical hurdles, but um, they're not insurmountable, I don't think. You know, they can be potentially resolved. It's just that we actually have to focus energy and attention there, which hasn't been done. So to ground us a bit in sort of how we got here, I'd like to 
go back into a little bit of history, which you talk a lot about in the book. It's really fascinating to just take full account of how much the the basic work of maintaining a domestic sphere, certainly in kind of higher GDP economies, which is the subject of your study, um, has radically changed over the past even just 200 years, right? And and there has been an incredible amount of labor-saving technology that we might not necessarily appreciate as technology, right? Um, clothes that aren't cotton, that don't need ironing, different types of flour, that kind of thing. So I would love you to uh, take us a little bit through that journey of like how that work has changed. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, we were really inspired by Ruth Short Quoen's sort of classic study, More Work for Mother, where she kind of uh, points to a lot of this history and um, sort of there's this tendency to think about domestic labor saving devices in terms of specific technologies that we have in individual homes. You know, you think about, about washing machines and microwaves and that sort of thing. And that becomes our horizon for thinking about what domestic technology is. But I think what, where her, her study is really helpful is that it pulls us back to the infrastructural developments that have had this deeply transformative influence upon the home and the way that it has um, it's evolved. So think basic things like running water and being able to uh, you know have um, uh, municipal um, rubbish and trash services, mm. that sort of thing. It's so profoundly unglamorous to to talk about, and definitely not as sexy as sort of uh, trad wife inflected imagery of you know. Uh, beautiful ladies in beautiful dresses doing things with sparkly, shiny, brand new ovens. But this is where the the, the deepest labour-saving transformations happened historically in terms of the industrialization of the home. And you know, one of the things that we we think about in the book is well, how can you how can you tap into that kind of infrastructural energy to think about the home? And the most the most radical one in in recent years has been obviously the arrival of the internet into people's domestic residences and the uh, the rise of the networked home. And we talk, we, we finish that chapter by talking about um, the smart home and how platform capitalism has kind of infiltrated the domestic residence. Because rather than uh, having this wonderful transformative uh, Jetsons effect where we suddenly live in beautiful, glamorous, Hanna-Barbera style homes with Rosie the robot doing everything for us, Actually, we live in these little data centers where we're sort of churning out uh, information for, um, for, 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 for companies. And I mean, that draws a lot on your work in platform capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Sort of looking at the way in which the companies, the, the very incentives of them based upon data. So they're trying to search for more data. Um, it's why you see Google investing so much in smart home technology, Apple's likewise. Um, and Amazon, of course, is the other big one, which, you know, I think about a year or two ago bought Roomba, uh, you know, the, the smart vacuum company. <gasps> Roomba um, is a snitch now. Yes, it is. No, oh no. And they're, they're mapping out your home and you can use that now to generate internal images of the home. And yeah, it's all sort of uh, all sorts of things going on there. And also how it, it doesn't help in terms of uh, housework. This is the thing, like, the, actually, when you think about what people might want from uh, a highly technologized domestic residence, actually, the, the eradication of housework would be, would be way up there. You know, let's reduce the, the, the burden of unpaid domestic labor. But that's not what the smart home is good at. And it's not even within sort of the the vocabulary of the smart homes imaginary because it's not focusing on on reducing labor at best 
it looks to kind of sand off the edges of of inconvenience you know it reduces a little bit of domestic friction so you know the lights will come on automatically or you know perhaps you can set the temperature of your wash using an app remotely or you know make your kettle kind of come on when you're out of the house but none of that goes a, a, any great distance in terms of uh, reducing the work that happens in the home it does very little in terms of transforming our day-to-day daily lives so there's this sense in which the the imaginaries of the techno home have reached a kind of frustrating dead end and our our argument is that part of that is because those imaginaries are so fixated upon single family dwellings so any potential sort of infrastructural thinking about the home and its technologies goes out of the window because you think about these little boxes that have different families in and everybody needs separate pieces of technology and there's not the that collective mindset that perhaps enabled different kinds of industrialization back in the early 20th century. It's like this, this sort of very class and racialized imaginary of like what um, technology can do is to not actually alleviate labor, but to kind of give you almost the, the sensation of being served. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah. that's kind of feels like the cell of having a, a light switch. You know, I can turn on a light switch, that's fine. Mm. The fact that I have to wash up the dishes every day for the rest of my life forever <laughs> is the thing that I'm bothered by, <laughs> right? Yeah. But um, let's focus on that family. Oh, yes, please. Um, So the other thing with the smart home basically is it's designed for single individuals rather than families. Mm. Um, You know, there's all these sorts of automations that you can get. You can say, walk into your house and suddenly lights come on and, you know, music starts playing and TV turns on, whatever the case may be. Um, But of course, it's designed for a single individual to then have their preferences imposed upon the rest of the house. Mm. Doesn't work if you have a family. Doesn't work if, you know, you have different schedules. Doesn't work... If there's really, if there's more than one person in the home. Um, so these technologies are really not designed for families in any way. Yeah, there's a real tension around that, isn't there? So you, you tend to have to have, if you've got a family account for something, uh, you tend to have to have like the, the, the boss. <laughs> there has to be one person who has control over the family account. And then, you know, you have this interesting uh, reassertion of certain kinds of gender hierarchies, because mm-hmm. typically given that the digital housework has been masculinized because it becomes it it's closer to uh what we think of as being a traditional male hobby sort of tech fiddling and um, tinkering and that kind of thing you end up with the person who runs family accounts for uh, you know Netflix or whatever being being the 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 man of the house <laughs> it's the um strange reassertion in these technological terms of what you talk about in the book is this the family and the domestic space being carved out of uh, a proper politics right there's no sense of like i don't know what what a democratic settlement would look like within a single household because it feels absurd to even talk about that so how how do we get here like what uh, uh, do we mean when we talk about the evolution of the single household, the nuclear family. Um, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, over the past 30, 40 years or so, there has been a, um, uh, a growing equality of the sort of domestic time spent working between genders. Um, so women are doing a bit less domestic work and men are doing a bit more domestic work. Actually, women are doing quite a bit less. Um, in part, well, in large part because they've moved into the waged workforce. So they're spending more time at work and less time at home. Um, so there's a growing equality there. 
but it's still not equal, even in the most gender equal countries in the world, still not equal by any means. And women are spending over the course of their lifetime, like a year or more um, in domestic work. Than and that's men. the best case scenario. That's, that's the best Sweden, case isn't scenario. It? Yeah, yeah. Like women do one and a half years. Yeah. More. And the other aspect as well is the, the, the quality of the work and the characteristics of the work. So, you know, talking about the smart home and the sort of work that gets done there um, as sort of, you know, male hobby work. Um, it's a bit more pleasurable than doing the laundry or cleaning the dishes or, you know, changing the nappies on a baby and things like that. So there's still this, even, even though on a sort of quantitative level, there's a greater equality, there's still quite significant inequalities in terms of the, um, uh, the characteristics of the work that's being done by men and by women. Um, and of course, uh, most of the data that we have is on heterosexual households as well, which really limits what we know about, you know, different family households. Yeah, I'd say that's a, a major limitation of the book is that because... And the existing data as well. Yeah, that's it. We, because we are reliant upon a lot of the existing data, it's mm. very much about cis heterosexual households. And so you end up with a very, uh, a very limited version. It's sort of the, the, the operating on an assumption of what uh, a family household is, which is quite limited. And then that creates kind of it, it makes it, it's tricky then because you're relying on that data to tell you what the current situation is, but you're also arguing against the sort of vision of the household that that data is trying to try. Well, that that, that data conveys because we're looking to complicate this idea of the cis heterosexual household as being the the model, you know. So we have this idea of you know women's work being associated with with forms of care work uh, in ways that precede the Industrial Revolution, right? And Sylvia Federici talks about this in great depth as, as well as many, many other writers. So what is the, the changes that happen when we go from a sort of a pre to industrial to industrial form of the nuclear home? What kind of work is being done and not done? Mm. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of a, the, the well-worn story of the, the emergence of, of, of separate spheres. So even though... Uh, pre-industrial revolution, there was still different types of work that typically were, were done by um, different types of people. Uh, this really gets entrenched uh, and intensified with the emergence of um, industrial capitalism, given that a lot of work was then taken from being perhaps piecework that happened inside the home um, to being a, a specific kind of activity that happened in a specific place outside of the domestic residence. Mm -hmm. So that then you have, it, that created particular problems for the survival of the family household as, as a unit. You know, there was a need to, uh, the, obviously the early years of uh, industrialization, there's a real scrabbling around thinking for the working classes thinking, oh God, how do we, how do we survive as a unit? How do we make this work? And Eventually, it comes to the point where there's a, it emerges that perhaps having a reproductive specialist within the family, who is the um, the wife and mother, um, enables the family to better undertake the work that needs to be done to ensure its survival. So it, it's not that you have sort of like hermetically sealed gendered spheres because women have always worked and. But particularly before marriage, you know, women were a real um, resource in the family to uh, to bring in to bring in wages and um, contribute to the to the family income. Um, but the 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 mother has is typically pulled out to become 
a, a, a sort of intrafamilial reserve army of wage labor. So um, she she's there until circumstances mean that her work is absolutely her waged work is absolutely necessary. So if there's situations of um, injury, um, death, um, intense material need. She's there within the fabric of the family to be pushed out to, to gather more income into, into the family. So she, she sits within, within the family for, for those reasons. And that's a, that's a pretty major, major shift that we, we trace through, through the book. Yeah. Um, and I think as well, so there's sort of more recent changes too. So you have post-World War, you get the rise of the welfare state across the Western world. Um, and you get the movement of some work of social reproduction pushed into the state. Um, healthcare is probably the biggest one, um, but you know you have, you have other forms of it as well that are moved into the state. What's happened under the neoliberal era is quite interesting because there's the major story, which is the privatization of this work. So work that was once done in sort of state forms, uh, increasingly being privatized and pushed into the market. But actually, there's sort of complications to this. One complication is that Childcare has been taken up more by the state in recent decades, which goes against the sort of standard neoliberal story that everything's just being privatized. It's not actually the case. Um, I think we rely too much on America, where it is highly marketized version of childcare, but actually in most of Europe, states have been offering uh, growing amounts of childcare support, um, whether it be in terms of you know subsidies for childcare or outright state provision of childcare. Um, so there has been the sort of movement there. Um, the other aspect as well is not just the movement of this work from the state to the market, but also the state back onto the family. Really good example of this is long-term care. So elderly populations um, and other people with, say, disabilities that you know prevent them from um, easily doing daily activities, uh, all of that requires long-term care. It was taken up by the state quite significantly um, in, say, the 1960s. So more and more of that work is being pushed onto the family now. Um, as we have aging populations across the Western world, it's becoming a, a bigger cost burden for uh, for governments. And so what they're doing is they're, they're forcing families to take up this work. So I think this is one sort of untold aspect of the neoliberal story. It gets picked up in Melinda Cooper's work really, really nicely, I think. Um, but the family is absolutely essential to the survival of the neoliberal state as we know it. Um, without the family as what I want to call the carer of last resort, um, the, the neoliberal order just wouldn't be able to exist. It requires the family to be able to take up that unpaid work. Do we think of the family as a technology then in the same way that we might think of, and Helen, you've written about this, of course, at length, the, the idea of gender as a technology. Is this uh, something that you would compare to a technological innovation like the washing machine or bleach flour or something like that? Or is it a sort of a different category of things that we're working with? Well, I think the great thing about technology as a word is that you can really bend it to do whatever you want. So it's like a lovely, great, big, baggy thing. Like if we're talking about um, if it is a, a a kind of tool or a mechanism that allows people to achieve specific ends, then certainly it is. And those ends are daily survival, you know, social reproduction. It is the sort of, it's the family as we know it is an adaptation to the economic system that, that that generated it, you know. So in that sense, it in that sense it, it is a technology. But obviously, in in, in terms of uh, comparing it to something like a device, it's it has a, a different set of resonances and a different set of of affordances that are much much broader and much more thoroughgoing because it sort of shapes the the spaces that we live in as well as those spaces shaping what families are and 
um, yeah, it's, it's a big encompassing term. But yeah, so the broad story that we actually tell in that chapter about the family is this 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 move from uh, the idea of reproductive laborers being an intrafamilial reserve army of wage labor to them being an intrafamilial reserve army of care. Mm. So with this sort of idea of everybody who can work for a wage will work for a wage. That's the that's the idea that underpins a lot of um, a lot of uh, welfare regimes and government thinking. Um, suddenly, when there is a when there's a crisis, it's about being able to withdraw people from the the labour market so that they can take care of small children, take care of um, relatives and people who have long term care needs. You know, deal with any kind of um, uh, fallout from elder care and so on. And that's uh, one of the the sort of the transformations in recent years that we talk about uh, in terms of in terms of the family and what it does. It continues to be this adaptive mechanism to enable us to to keep keep on going. Those of us who are fortunate enough to 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 have them and for them not to be um, a source of deep concern and worry, which is not everybody, which is another factor you need to take into account here is that like the family is is adaptive for some but not for everybody, and we always see that there are people who are squeezed out, pushed away, um, who don't have access to the family to begin with. And when the family is the carer of last resort, you've got to ask the question, well, what happens to people who don't have one? And uh, the truth is that that they particularly struggle to survive. The classic stat there is how how many um, LGBTQ plus youth Mm. experiencing family rejection are homeless. The answer is there often often is no last resort. I'm really curious about um, how you trace and historicize in many ways the structural, economic, legal things that, that keep us sort of forcibly reinvesting in this family form, even if we might disagree with it, even if we might feel uncomfortable with it, even if we might be experiencing violence within it. Um, and one of the many, uh, one of the most important factors there is often welfare, usually the thing that we're arguing for, right? Mm. Yeah, there's, there's, in many countries, there's a sort of uh, a system set up to incentivize the nuclear family, um, and particularly a heterosexual form of it. Um, so, you know, migration is a good example. You know, I'm a Canadian in a foreign country, um, and my migration status for the longest period of time depended upon being married to Helen. You know, there's this sort of institutional form um, uh, that, you know, incentivized us to to take up marriage, to take up particular structure yeah well we had to it was sort of either either the relationship ended or we got married so you know (laughs) we we sort of funneled very clearly into a particular way of life through through these uh, migration regimes yeah um and and taxes as well is another example you know there's sort of tax benefits to being married and tax benefits to having a family structure um yeah there's all sorts of uh, incentives built into legal mechanisms to to take up this particular family form um and the sort of the perverse aspect is, is that, well, there's fewer and fewer people living in these sorts of families. Mm-hmm. If you, I think if you look at uh, UN stats on this, so they've got demographic stats across the, the, the rich world. And it's something like 51% of households are like nuclear family households now. Um, you know, it's just barely the majority and it's not going to be the majority um, um, very soon. So there's fewer people living in these household in these nuclear families, um, but the state is still incentivized to push people into it. And if you don't take up that family structure, 
then there's all sorts of you know detriments to it. Um, so the state really needs to be changing um, in many many ways. Yeah, I always think about that in terms of like the the household bubbles from uh, mm. from lockdown era, where you have so there is this sort of implicit acknowledgement in the very idea of the 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 care bubble that the the people who live within a household may not be able to meet their daily caring needs on their own. So the idea that you need to bubble up with somebody in order to to kind of get by seems to suggest, okay, well, you're going outside of the, the household. But the whole way that that's um, the the sort of the, the drafting of policy around this took place was to to basically say, oh, well, well, people in your bubble count as part of your household. So it was this reassertion of the household, like, oh, they are basically honorary members of your household. It's just your household. This constant pulling of a wider set of care needs back into this idea of the self-sufficient household, even at the moment when it acknowledged that, okay, well, that was, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this, so this, there, there was never any, any sort of thinking about how we go beyond the household and the insufficiency of the household that had to be, that had to be ignored. And actually, you know, with the pandemic, there was this moment where the idea of being able to close your front door and be uh, like, like a hermetically sealed bubble w- became a sort of vital idea in terms of infection control. You know, there's this sense in which it could have been a really big setback in terms of thinking about communising care because it was this retreat into what's safe, you know, mm. or what we imagine to be safe, what we are able to pretend to ourselves might be safe. Um, but I actually think it ultimately it probably went the other way, because you had this this moment where the famous double shift became a, like a simultaneous shift because the work of care and wage labor came to happen uh, not sequentially but but simultaneously mm. in terms of both time and space, so people were dealing with care care work and uh, wage labor whilst they were in the home. And this is if they were fortunate enough to not be classed as essential workers, you know, going out delivering people's meals and, um, you know, taking care of people in healthcare situations and stocking shelves. So it's, there has been, for people who might have been inoculated from some of the real force of the care crisis up till now by mm. virtue of their, their gender and their class, um, there was a sudden confrontation with, oh, well, this isn't working, is it? <laughs> Actually, this is pretty fucked up. I'm not, you know, there's a real problem here, isn't there? And you're like, yeah, <laughs> yes, there is. Welcome to the party. Yeah, hello. And so there's been um, a, a kind of an under, a, a deeper understanding of that crisis and how thinking holistically about uh, waged and unwaged forms of work brings us into this, um, this interesting uh, point of tension and contradiction where we have to... Um, uh, plot a way forward. And I think it, it, it's been very helpful in terms of projects for a shorter working week and reduced uh, working hours. I think there's been a, a real resurgence of interest in that on the basis of um, what, a lot, what a lot of people experienced during, during the lockdown. So we've talked about in different ways how um, people have experienced like the flaws of the family form or the flaws of like the nuclear family, at least in solving the basic problems that it is supposed to solve. And this is where different kinds of fixes come in or sort of balloted in to try and alleviate that if you have the money to pay for it, obviously. And platformization is, of course, one of them you talk about in the book, that the rise of the platform as often geared towards providing pieces of care work um, on demand. 
I was going to say one of the um, interesting findings I came across in researching the book was um, countries that are more unequal have more domestic service helpers. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the sort of reemergence of this domestic servant economy, which was massive back in you know the early 1900s, um, and then sort of disappeared over the course of World War One and World War II. Um, but it's reemerged. And as you say, it's particularly in these unequal countries because you've got wealthy families who can afford to then pay for the domestic servants. And you've got domestic servants which are looking for a wage in any form that they can find. And um, yeah, it's the, the rise of inequality is one of the main drivers behind this. You've talked about the border as well as something that kind of helps reinforce the family form. And I'm uh, wondering uh, what the points of contact are with this kind of reemergence of like a, a massive servant service sector economy. Yeah, I mean, I think famously domestic work is uh, one of the sort of least protected, least well-regulated, least safe kind of um, forms of work that are available. And so um, a lot of uh, people with uncertain migration status find themselves being pushed towards that kind of work. You know, there are also specialist visas that um, people can obtain to do that sort of work that leave them beholden to the whims of a particular employer. And that can very often be the family. You know, there's there is this tendency to think that words like family always mean something nice and fluffy and kind. <laughs> but when you think that the family is also an employer and that about the blurring of the distinction between what is home and what is work that happens for um, some uh, sort of co-residential domestic workers, you understand that actually, you know, family can also be pretty, pretty toxic, not just for the people within it, but for the people who get dragged into its orbit in one form or another. So yes, yeah, certainly there are, there are distinctive connections there. And you've talked about um, the way that like the maid comes in as a kind of more useful domestic technology, political technology than the machine, um, simply because it is, according to a capitalist logic of accumulation, far cheaper. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask a very possibly silly question. Why is it such a global trend, such a robust trend that care work is so poorly paid? Yeah, I mean, it is... It sounds like a simple question, but I think the answer to it is really, really anything, anything but. It's a fairly complex sort of uh, nexus of issues there. I mean, the, the obvious point is that it's poorly paid because employers are incentivized to pay as low as they possibly can. <laughs> um, so it, some of it comes down to worker power. And um, obviously there are some remarkable unions of domestic workers that do, that do incredible things. But at the same time, you know, we were talking about, you know, the, the, the precarity that comes with that kind of work um, that's in, that is entangled with that kind of work. And that sometimes makes it difficult to um, to sort of uh, build worker power, as does the fact that quite often people are not are working in isolated conditions. And so it's difficult to do the, the coordination that enables um, people to, to, to kind of uh, work together from a labour organising perspective. And then, you know, why there is the sense that employers have that they can get away with paying so low, you know, comes down to the way that care work has been um, 
naturalized historically, I think. So in this is in terms of both uh, gender and race, the idea of sort of um, the 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 particularly uh, caring, automatically naturally nurturing person um, as sort of it being just a a byproduct, a kind of surplus that can be skimmed off the personality, you know, well, and, and part of that is, is, is also about the fact that that work has been un, unpaid, you know, it's been indirectly market mediated labour. So coming to understand it as a form of work that deserves um, social and financial recognition involves a kind of uh, some transformative thinking. And that's you know one of the things that we push for in the book. No, uh, we we think about uh, recognition, redistribution, and reduction as being sort of the the three R's at the heart of the um, the, the project of thinking reproductive labour. So you've you've gone through in a lot of detail how, despite uh, massive uh, advances in the automation of certain forms of domestic and care work, it doesn't seem to be the case that we're actually saving labour, you know, despite all these supposedly labour-saving devices, we're actually not generally working that much less on the basic task of keeping ourselves and our loved ones alive. Um, what accounts for that discrepancy? Yeah, this is the um, the famous finding from Rousseau's Cohen back in the 1970s that, like, despite all these new technologies in the household, dishwashers, washers and dryers, vacuums, you know, whatever we still weren't working any less in the home. Um, so we were still working as much. Um, there have been recent studies which have looked at that same thesis, and it's complicated because the nature of homes has changed uh, in terms of the people living in it. So the demographics have changed. Um, you know, For instance, if you're young, you're less likely to be doing domestic work. If you're much, much older, you're less likely to be doing domestic work. So you have to take into account these changing factors and calculate things on the basis of that. But the best piece I've seen suggests that we are doing about one hour less of domestic work individually um, than what we were doing back in the 1900s. Um, so it's it's fundamentally unchanged uh, over the course of a century, uh, the amount of domestic work that we do as individuals. Um, and the reason why, well, there's a few different reasons. One is that a lot of this work used to be collectively done, and it may have been a burden, but it was a shared burden where any individual didn't have that much work to do. And then it became individualized over the course of the 20th century. So it became particularly the isolated housewife who took on this collective work um, with the assistance of the new domestic technologies. So laundry, for instance, being done by a neighbor, uh, you know, with a neighbor, uh, now being done in the home. Um, the other thing that changed significantly was the rising of standards. So the expectation that you wouldn't just be cleaning your clothes once a month, but actually you'd be doing it once a week or once a day. Um, you know, in this household with children, we do laundry at least once a day, sort of thing. Yeah, the middle child is potty training, so it's a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <Jane>. rough. <laughs> so there, there was labor saving with these technologies, but the standards went up, which meant that the output went up, and it meant that any sort of time saving that might have been there didn't occur. What we do in the book is we try and continue the, the the Cohen thesis and the focus on standards and look at how it's not just cleaning standards, um, which actually arguably declined over the past few decades, um, but it's also other things like childcare, for instance. Mm -hmm. One of the most surprising statistics we found was that across the rich world, parents are spending more time with children than ever before. 
Um, and this is despite the fact that men and women are both now doing more waged work as a household. Um, so we're now doing more childcare, driven by this competition for, you know, to get our kids into the best universities so that they can have a decent chance um, at their life afterwards. Um, so we we're seeing an increase in standards for childcare. Um, and that's, you know, one of the major reasons why despite all these domestic technologies, we're just not seeing any labor saving actually occurring. Yeah, I think there's something really bleak about this idea of the child as a little sort of bundle of human capital that you have to invest in and do so wisely. And it just, I think it really inflects a lot of the 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 care a child dynamic now is that you have to be maximizing their 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 life opportunities the whole time. And actually the opportunity for uh, play, let alone comradeship, but intergenerational comradeship is really, really um, drastically reduced. I mean, I think I think it's also important to note that when we talk about the the rise of the the, the isolated housewife, there are of course exceptions historically to the to that kind of living arrangements you know that the amongst the very poorest there's always been a sort of um uh, entrenched collectivity as part of daily survival you know different um uh, ethnicities have kind of had different organizations there's been a tendency to uh, go for extended families in some communities rather than others you know immigrant communities to the US for example there was a still this uh, residual uh, collective bent, but we're still able to kind of tell this story of the isolated housewife because actually when you, across classes in the sort of middle of the 20th century, you do get this, uh, the hegemony of the nuclear family, that mm. actually across classes, it is the most widespread and entrenched form. So whilst I think it's really important to reflect upon the lived diversity of domestic arrangements, you can still meaningfully talk about the family as becoming hegemonic, you know, at that time. And the and so we're still feeling this this lasting influence of the breadwinner homemaker model. Now we still get the ghost of it pushing up against this idea of a universal breadwinner model um, to the point where there's still this this discrepancy in terms of the amounts of um, unpaid domestic work that people do. There's still a discrepancy in terms of the um, hours put in in the waged workplace, and there's uh, you still see it through um, through welfare regimes and the tendency for. There's this assumption that there is a uh, a dual breadwinner model, but actually it's usually a one and a half breadwinner models where you've got actually one person is, is earning less and scrabbling around trying to meet the caring requirements of the family and making sure someone's there to do the school run and somebody's there to make sure that, that dinners are on the table for uh, elderly relatives and things like that. So you... Uh, there's a lot of tension that comes from the fact that there are these two models butting up against each other. The ghost of the breadwinner homemaker model coming up against this uh, this dual breadwinner model all the time and generating these tensions, particularly around care. So usually when uh, we think about automation, it's not an isolated uh, experience of just people doing less work or those jobs not existing. It often comes along with other phenomenons like de-skilling and spatial displacement and the increasing isolation of individual workers. And I'm really curious as to about how and if that crops up in the home. I mean, I think one really interesting thing about not 
uh, not automation specifically, but thinking about the technologization, so the, the different kinds of new technologies that are coming into the home, is when we look at, uh, at healthcare. So, you know, in, in healthcare, there are a, very often a different set of, um, of, of pressures when we're thinking about it outside of the home. But we're seeing a lot of medical technologies coming in to the domestic residents. Uh, so things like, well, in our own experience, we had this sort of like, I've got, there are certain things about uh, like uh, pregnancy and childbirth that really stay with me is particularly harrowing. And one of them is after I've, I've had three C-sections now and after each one, Nick, oh, wow. <laughs> Nick is responsible for injecting me with um, uh, seven days worth of anticoagulants so that I don't get blood clots. Um, and nobody tells him how to do it. Uh, he just gets given like this set of needles and a sharps box and they say, well, just go and like jab jab your spouse with <laughs> with this drug. So there's, 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 no, there's no training, there's no support for something that, I mean, and that's relatively simple. You just has to find a, a nice chubby bit and, and poke it. But like still, like it's, I, I've, I've, I think because like I really hate it and I bruise really easily. So I'm going like, I don't want to, I hate it. I'm so awful. I'm full of hormones. And you're there like having to stoically <laughs> administer medication to me. Like it stays in my mind as just being like really like awful, more than like surgeries or anything, just this aftermath of being, being jabbed by it. And that is such a simple technology. You know, you're having people who are, who are dealing with much more complicated things in the home, who are, you know, being expected to, to catheterize people that, you know they're they're responsible for who are you know dealing with complex drug regimens you know and as well as things like infection control and things like that and wound dressing and because there is the technology to make that possible and because there is also this um pe people don't want to be in hospitals you know they want they want to be at home suddenly there is this the rise of this kind of expert amateur in terms of healthcare. So the technologies are enabling different kinds of care in relation to take place, but they're also creating this real intensification of work for some people. And of course, it's like if Nick was uh, not enjoying the fact that he had to just give me give me very basic injections. Just imagine what it's like if you're really worried about the health and well-being of somebody and you're worried about the equipment malfunctioning. You're worried about getting it wrong. You're worried about doing things. So it that is not automation that's work displacement that comes with these technologies and pushes them out of the um, out of the hospital and into into the home but often onto the onto the shoulders of people who don't have training who don't have support who are worried and stressed and harried already so you know this there's a very interesting sort of dynamic around the technologization of the home when it comes to this this healthcare work I think particularly on the notion of a de-skilling, because I think a lot of this technology, which again can be presented as the automation of, say, nursing care, mm -hmm. um, but actually is displacing work to the home. Mm -hmm. But in terms of de-skilling, well, it's a de-skilling of nurses' work, but then actually it's not really reducing the skill necessary to, to handle this technology. Um, but it's being presented as though it could be picked up by anybody when that's not in fact the case. Um, you know, there's quite a lot of skill and training required to do this stuff safely. Um, and, you know, organizing the home in such a way that it's sanitary, hygienic, and all these things that are required for it. It's one of the reasons that healthcare work uh, left the home uh, in the early 20th century was because of the germ theory of disease and this new awareness of the need for these spaces to be particularly hygienic. And now that it's just 
the expectation is that you create a sort of hospital-like environment within the home to administer this care, which again is sort of this, it, it's pushing standards up in a way that's particularly freighted <laughs> with anxiety about what it means not to be clean enough in that space. But it's, it's, it's very nice, I think, in terms of um, when we think about the development of new technologies, we often think about them automating work. But actually, a lot of the recent technologies have simply displaced work onto users and customers. Self-service checkouts are a really clear example. So the ways in which, well, it's the automated work of the cashier, but now it's being pushed actually onto the customer who has to do, you know, the scanning and the calculating, the bagging, and all of this sort of stuff. Um, so I think oftentimes technologies that we label as being automating aren't in fact automating. They're they're displacing work to somebody else. And there's the work of the invisibilizing it as well by shielding it within the nuclear family, which is supposed to be this closed mm, yeah. unit that is not uh, where things that we don't want to bear witness to mm. necessarily mm. occur. It reminds me of um, uh, the mechanical Turk, right? Mm. Things that we experience supposedly as automated, but are just happening out of sight. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, uh, <laughs> reflecting on your, your um, studies of kind of other forms of, of platformization, uh, what do we have to learn from, from other sectors possibly when we're looking at care work and domestic work? Well, so in terms of the gig economy, um, I think in most cases what's been happening is uh, taking sort of quite formalized work that was reliant upon a fairly standard employment contract uh, and moving it into a much more freelance sort of model. And I think within the domestic care sector, you've already got, it's actually sort of the opposite. So you, you tend to have a fairly informal market, um, you know, cleaners and stuff being paid with cash under the table, um, completely avoiding, you know, sort of formal systems. Um, but as it moves on to platforms, it becomes increasingly formalized. Um, platform companies will say, oh, we're creating jobs. Um, but actually, I think a lot of it is just the, the transformation of informal work into more formal work. Mm -hmm. Now, this can have benefits for the workers involved. Um, but in many cases, it also means the people who are, you know, their, their, say, legal status in a country is unclear. It means that they can't find jobs because they can't simply go on to um, these, these registered platforms and be able to work. Um, so there is all these sorts of negative impacts on um, the, the, the on migrants in particular. So we've kind of examined the state of the union, right? That there are these two levels largely on which social reproductive work in general takes place. The kind of level of the families, very often very small unit, shrinking unit, so you point out, and the level of the state. And there seems to be very little in the middle, as opposed to what you've talked about historically, right? The hollowing out of communities, the deep suspicion of the extended family or the collective, uh, which again, as you've talked about, is like very kind of uh, cashed out in very uh, like racialized terms as well. So I'm, I'm wondering kind of what needed to be cleared away for this, the nuclear family to emerge and, and kind of how that happens. Like how do we lose these collective laundries, these collective kitchens. Yeah, the story of collective laundries, I think, is quite interesting because there was a moment before washers and dryers became highly popular in, in individual homes when almost all classes would use collective laundries. Um, they would drop their clothes off and have them washed and return and pick them up. Um, but the reasons why uh, they ended up collapsing had to do with one 
the, the manufacturers of these domestic devices uh, were national companies, major manufacturers. They had huge budgets to advertise this stuff and present it as being um, the way of the future, whereas the collective laundries tended to be much more local and had much less um, in, in, in the way of budget to advertise their services and things. So they ended up collapsing because it was a national versus a sort of local um, um, conflict going on. One of the other reasons, though, was because there was an increasing concern, um, particularly by white people, that their clothes were being mixed with other races. Uh, and there was this fear that there was contaminants from other races. Um, and so they started not going to collective laundries because of that, that fear and just doing it in the home. Um, so you have, you know, these racial aspects and the, the sort of the dynamics of capitalism and big capital um, driving collective laundries out of business. And, you know, that, that sort of moment where it could have been collectivized um, just disappeared. Yeah, I think what, one of the things that we, we are interested in in the book is how you kind of um, return to that scale. So, you know, we were just talking about healthcare and we we draw on um, the proposals that, uh, that Autonomy made and that's the, the think tank around um, long-term care centres. So trying to find a space between the home and the hospital. So understanding that the hospital is not an ideal space to be cared for within mm -hmm. um, for lots lots of reasons, you know, the, the sense of a, a lack of autonomy that comes with being um, in that sort of uh, institutional setting. It's also uh, has very bad impacts on uh, people with dementia, uh, you know, there, there's this sort of institutional deterioration. So when they have to be hospitalized, <clears throat> there tends to be um, a real um, a real crisis that comes when they come back into the home because they're disorientated and, and, and all of this kind of thing. So um, finding a space between home and hospital and finding, reasserting that scale, um, the, the long-term care centre is about, well, maybe there could be a space where carers could be brought together where there could be this kind of, you know, people on hand to offer training and advice about the kind of processes and practices that they're supposed to enter into, um, where there could be just spaces for respite. Because this is one of the things about, about long-term care and other forms of uh, indirectly market-mediated care is it, it, the sheer relentlessness of it. The fact that it never stops. There's never a break. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of the, the, the process of, um, you know, a lot of, of post-work is, and this sort of relates to where we started in terms of the emergence of the project and the way different kinds of work are being treated. You know, you can have an eight hours movement around the idea that there is a distinct separation between work and home, that, you know, mm -hmm. you can push for a reduction in working time um, to enable you to, to have greater leisure, more time for what we will. But that doesn't work if the, the, there's a different temporality at stake. And the temporality of of certain kinds of care at the moment is there are, because it's pushed into a, a, the family form, it's relentless, never ending, never stops. There can be no short time movement uh, when you can't stop somebody needing to be cared for. Yeah. So this is why it makes it, it really complicates the story that post-work tells because it requires thinking about, well, how do you, how do you bring an emancipatory imaginary to a kind of work that's so obstinate, so recalcitrant, that we we not only can't wish away, but that we wouldn't want to wish away because you don't want to leave people uncared for. Like, you know, you you want people to be to be provided for. And 
um, you, you don't want there to be a care deficit. So how how can we do that? And that's where we where we start with the whole with the whole project is thinking. Okay, there is a different temporality at stake here, and uh, the what some people think of as the post work formula of like um, automation plus UBI plus shorter working hours can't you can't just roll that out unilaterally over all kinds of work you need to think think differently and take different approaches and factor those into a post-work imaginary in order to have a properly thoroughgoing feminist post-work politics i'm really intrigued by um i guess how will we know that we've arrived at a post-work settlement for the kind of work that is already unpaid right it's already like in theory uh, carved out from like the nexus of production because it, you're not doing it for a wage. Right? And with other sectors, we can think about how we reorganize that in terms of um, removing it from the money nexus and making sure that we're all doing it collectively and people are generally working like not for a wage, lovely stuff done. I'm wondering what we will need to recognize like a post-work non-alienated form of this kind of work that never ends. Mm. I mean, I think for for me, I'm, uh, Nick may well have a more uh, nuanced and sensible answer. <laughs> uh, but for me, I don't think we ever arrive at post-work. I think it's a vector, not an endpoint. So I think actually the idea that we might get to a point where as workers, we're just like, done, everything's perfect now. Uh, it, 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 that That's not the point. So it's more the, the philosophical project of post-work is one about an orientation towards freedom and towards maximizing the realm of freedom uh, continually. And that involves not thinking that there are certain things which are um, excluded in advance from that project or that when we get there, that's the end of it. But understanding that there's this perpetual ongoing um, synthetic work of building a future and always assuming that because our, our technical capacities and our social desires, uh, what we want, how we want it, why we want it are perpetually evolving. Uh, there was this ongoing project of seeking to um, minimise the realm of necessity and maximise the realm of freedom. And that's a perpetually evolving project. So we can't arrive at our post-work utopia because it's always uh, something that we are we are pointing towards and we understand that there's not, there isn't an arrival point. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think even just on a sort of blunt empirical level, you know, we can we can see increases in the amount of free time that people have and whether or not they are getting more free time. And the fact that, you know, like I said earlier, the, the studies seem to suggest we're doing as much domestic labor today as we were 100 years ago says that, you know, the post-work project hasn't had any impact on domestic work whatsoever. Um, so there's still, you know, plenty of ways to go. Tell us about some of those experiments that you document in maximizing the realm of freedom that um experiments in living community that you talk about um the frankfurt kitchen red vienna um the russian commune right mm -hmm. um that, that do um are imperfect right um uh, but are imperfect in i think very informative and interesting ways yeah that's what that's what i hope for for that chapter where it's it that it's uh, the whole chapter that, that's on that's on living spaces in particular that that seeks to identify these little glimmers of 
lost futures, you know, things that could have been different, different sort of sets of concerns or um, different horizons that were embodied in these spatial experiments. So we start with uh, the Dom Communa, the, the Russian communal house, and the way that there was this sort of um, uh, revolutionary, post-revolutionary kind of fervor for changing how the are uh, uh, changing our domestic living arrangements as part of uh inducing the formation of a new kind of subjectivity and how interesting that that was as a moment that's now been forgotten whilst trying as we do throughout the book not to lapse into a kind of romanticism about about this past understanding that actually a lot of a lot of that that project of collective living was driven by material need and housing shortages and actually it's ideologically convenient to tether uh, a, a new subjectivity a new socialist person to actually is this, existing is this, constraints is this cramped housing or collective living who yeah. can tell <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like giving this sort of veneer of ideological correctness to um, uh, material deprivation. Uh, so we, we we talk about that. Then we we sort of move on to um, the apartment hotel in New York, which um, I'm endlessly fascinated by because it's this this moment where actually it wasn't about how collective living was born of material deprivation. It was this this moment in the earliest of the very earliest years of the 20th century where that living together, living not in sort of single family contained dwellings, but in some kind of uh, complex was a vision of opulence for the for the very affluent as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I talk a bit about the Ansonia building in New York, which was this apartment hotel. So you have these range of kitchenless suites um, that... Uh, that can be sort of reconfigured as different living arrangements come into being. Uh, this in sort of like in the, the the 1910s, 1920s, they had like pneumatic tubes in the walls so that you could communicate with a professionalised uh, class of reproductive labourers. They had a city farm on the roof that gave people eggs every day. I, I learned um, recently that they also had they had a fountain in the lobby that had live seals. What? <laughs> Absolutely, it, like really <laughs> intriguing. And then, uh, at, at, and then in the sort of the the the, the mid to late twentieth century, there was also a sex club in the basement. Yeah. If that's not uh, if, well, if, if that's, that's not, not a utopia for the seals, I tell you that. <laughs> oh, no. but, but, but yeah, it was this this vision of public luxury where they had um, you know the practical stuff like healthcare facilities, dentists, pharmacists, doctors within the building, um, as well as sort of. Um, uh, cafeterias and the provision of food, but also then luxuries as well. So florists and tailors, and you know this, it's this condensed vision of of a luxury that's about being in proximity to others rather than luxury as a vision of being able to withdraw from others um, or, pr- or pretend you're withdrawing from from others. Yeah, an anti suburb exactly where you know where you have this sort of disavowed dependency upon people who come into the home and you pretend. Uh, part of a self-sufficient residence, but um, th- to this more sort of collective vision. So we, yeah, we, we go from that, then we do interwar social housing and how that's offered a kind of similar imaginary in terms of the provision of reproductive services within the complex and how that level of proximity speaks to that scale that we were talking about in terms of the communal and the community. And uh, yeah, and then, then go through to... Um, uh, the rise of the suburbs and how it, 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 that really uh, came to 
occupy the domestic imagination for a really long time and we're still feeling the effects of that. And then the little kind of micro experiments that popped up afterwards in terms of the countercultural commune in the, the 60s and 70s. So we think we talk about um, the lesbian separatist commune and also the sort of the, the hippie countercultural commune and how they offered these, these very imperfect and flawed visions of making the rethinking of domestic labour a crucial part of a political project, you know. And for all of their the the difficulties that they that they had, they offer a glimmer of a different way of organising our domestic lives. And so trying to exactly that project of trying to sort of filter out like what what is there here that might be the basis of an alternative domestic imaginary for the future. And what do we need to identify as being problematic, learn from and and discard? I'm really curious as to what you guys mean uh, by these two notions that we're talking about a lot. And I think a lot of people are pointing at possibly different things when they say them. One is public luxury and the other is free time. And especially the kind of free bit of that can be very loaded because for what, from whom, to do what, ex- etc etc so i would love to kind of maybe go for public luxury first what are we talking about when we talk about that yeah so public luxury um it's an idea you find um in mike davis's work and also in george monbiot's work um and it's sort of counterintuitive because when we think about luxury it's often seen as this uh, a status object, you know, luxury goods are things which provide you with a status above and beyond other people. And so by their very nature, they are, you know, exclusive, they can't be public. Um, so what would public luxury mean in that sense? Um, well, there's another way of understanding luxury, which is to understand it as, you know, high quality. Uh, this is really what we're getting at when we talk about um, public luxury is the provision of collective goods, which aren't just a sort of basic subsistence level you know, service or good, um, but in fact, something which, you know, has uh, uh, an element of opulence to it, really. Um, so it can be something as simple as, you know, these incredible Finnish libraries, which are being built and, you know, incredibly luxurious buildings um, with plenty of open space and, you know, lots of sun and all sorts of lovely things at them. They can be, you know, the Moscow subway, um, you know, this public infrastructure, which is also incredibly gorgeous. Um, it can be public parks, which, you know, we have quite a bit of in London, but they're increasingly privatized. Um, and it can also be things uh, we look to, for instance, World War II. Uh, there was this moment in uh, in the UK where the government had to feed people, had to provide enough food to people to be able to survive. And so what they organized was what um, they eventually called uh, national kitchens. It was going to be communal kitchens and then... Communal feeding centers. Communal feeding centers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Churchill decided that sounded too communist, and so they were renamed national kitchens. Um, but effectively what they were was they were um, canteens that people could go to and get in some cases, food that was much better quality than what they had before the war, um, because it was organized to provide a healthy meal and to do so in a heavily subsidized way, which was cheap for people so they could afford it. And in some cases, this public provision of food um, even was taking artworks from Buckingham Palace and the National Galleries and putting it into these local little canteens. That's amazing. <laughs> this is this is public luxury. I mean, this is what we could do if we didn't have uh, massively privatized um, uh, luxury that we have today. Nick has really talked about a lot of a lot of the the main issues, which is this this idea that luxury shouldn't be seen as a sort of um, uh, 
a matter of position. It's not about positional goods. It's about um, about this having access to a good quality of life for, for, for everybody. And to think not about in terms of the stuff that we can have in our individual homes for our individual families, but thinking about the wider social fabric as being where luxury might be situated. Mm. And that being, you know, this, this, this quite radical process of reimagining it. And it sort of goes, goes back to what we, to this, this moment of the, the post-revolutionary Russia and the, the, the immediate sort of this process of building the, the new socialist person where, there was this this moment of thinking, well, not just in terms of the your own private space, but understanding that you have a right to the city, that you have access to the wider city, that the city is part of as part of your luxury. That you know, and the way that that runs through the play, things like Red Vienna, where there's this emphasis on actually, you know, the images that were often used to illustrate and accompany these new housing developments were not just about the private space, but about the the communal resources that they provided. You know, these these uh, these great laundries, these squares and the idea that you could that everybody uh, you know including reproductive laborers who might have you know been uh, isolated in the home previously had access to these sort of civic spaces these public spaces and that you were encouraged to uh, to see that you had in, an entitlement to access a political life and a social life as well as a domestic life mm-hmm. and that being key to thinking about about public luxury I'm left wondering about like what the relationship is between that free time and the kind of work that needs to be done, right? Which can be taxing, it can be boring, it can involve some drudgery, right? Um, and also there are certain types of care work that we might want to start doing more of, right? Mm. No longer babysat by uncle television, right? Yeah, because we're yeah. maybe sort of working for a wage less. But I, I'm wondering how uh, you maybe start to envisage that kind of uh, reorganization where more people start doing care work as well as more people start having free time in a meaningful sense. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. I think the one key thing to note is that there is no... Um, there's always going to be a sphere of necessity. There's always going to be activities which are absolutely required for the reproduction of society, the reproduction of the species. Um, there's no way around um, some 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 forms of work. Um, what's crucial, though, is that first of all, sort of minimizing that work as much as possible, particularly the burdensome work, mm-hmm. but also enabling the capacity to take up the necessary work as a freely chosen project. Parenting is a really good example of that because, at least in its ideal form, it's a freely chosen project, uh, which then requires things like nappy changes, things like waking up at all times of the night in order to feed the child, and things like, you know, all things the- like interrupting your podcast to stop your baby from crying, which I'm going to do right now. <laughs> Yeah, so the challenge is to not only sort of increase the the quantity of absolute free time where we can freely choose whatever we want, but also the capacity to choose necessary labor. Um, in the ideal situation, this labor is shared amongst everybody. So the situation we have now where the wealthy pay 
the poor in order to do most of this work, you know, come in, clean our homes, look after our kids, all this sort of stuff. Um, that situation changes and everybody has to do a certain part of this necessary labor for society. That already frees up a lot of people to, to have more proper free time. But then there's also the capacity to take on this necessary labor and uh, make it so that it is more of a freely chosen project rather than a, a forced necessity on people. Um, and this can be as simple as you know providing options. Um, parenting, for instance, you know one of the sort of hardest parts of it is that if you don't have family around to be able to look after your children when you're at work or something like that, then you it's very difficult to get free time from your children, um, to have a personal life outside of your your children. Um, but if you suddenly have the option of you know publicly provided childcare, twenty four seven, um, you know universally provided childcare, suddenly you have the option to you know have childcare to, uh, that you can use to go and get a meal with your wife and things like that. Um, so just having that simple option suddenly means that there's much more. That necessary labor is much more freely chosen rather than an imposed sort of necessity. Um, and it's these sorts of things which we try and think about in the book about how can we enable this through a variety of institutional mechanisms and uh, a variety of technologies and a variety of different social formations. How can we enable um, not to entirely eradicate necessary labor, but make it so that it's more and more a freely chosen activity. Yeah, I mean, I think that example really illustrates that it's when we think about reproductive labor, the post-work project isn't just about um, uh, pushing work away, because this idea of 24-hour universal childcare is, of course, a very work-intensive one. It's more about how that work gets distributed in a way that's maximally emancipatory, and it can only happen if the conditions for those for those workers who are taking care of the children in the 24-hour childcare centres are also exceptionally uh, good. You know, so it's a, a a project which is not just about saying no to work, but understanding that there are. A, a, enabling a changing set of conditions around work. You talked about the fight for free time. And of course, I'm sure our listeners will be wondering, I guess, where where to begin? Like where to begin articulating that fight for free time uh, within their own domestic situations, within their own kind of formal workplaces? Uh, what are we talking about there? Mm. Uh, well, I think when we talk about free time there's this great uh, moment in Kathy Weeks's book the problem with the problem with work where she returns to that um, eight hours movement slogan of uh, time for what we will you know so eight hours for work eight hours for rest eight hours for what we will and she problematizes this idea of well but what, what do we mean by what we will is it just anything we like <laughs> is it anything we like or is it about uh, what we will, the, the the things that what we would like to will into being. So is it just about enabling us to, to do the things we already want to do? Or is it about creating a space for the cultivation of new desires? And I think, and you know, she settles on, well, it's, it's both. Yeah, it's about being able to do the things that we want now, but also creating spaces whereby a new form of subjectivity might emerge because we are out of these, um, this particular kind of working relation that funnels us into certain ways of being. Um, where we where we start with this sort of project practically is really tough because we 
what we don't want to do is frame it in terms of, well, it, it's just about how we organise our own specific domestic life. Mm. That's pretty problematic as, as, as a framework because it suggests that these changes can happen within families and that that's sufficient. It's one of the key things that we argue is that it's a matter of going beyond families and understanding that that however we might shape our own individual domestic arrangements, there needs to be a sort of wider a wider shift towards communal care and that that's very difficult to, to engineer on the basis of um, the individual, you know, so e even sort of the kind of prefigurative projects that we talk about, you know, things like um, the lesbian separatist commune, we have to be really clear that whilst they represent a way of living an alternative in the here and now, they're always a sort of um, uh, a clawing back of autonomy from a wider system that that can only ever be imperfect. So we we do offer some kind of proposals in the book. I don't know if Nick, you want to come in and, and talk talk about some of them. I don't want to don't want to run through all <laughs> of them on my own. <laughs> um, I mean, so you know, we we think that one of the starting points is maybe the rolling the rolling back of those scaffolds and bolsters that artificially uphold certain ways of living, the family and uh, the the single family home, the sort of laws around things like power of attorney and um, inheritance and welfare. Yeah, so in the book, we try and set out not just a sort of utopian vision of what this sort of post-work world might look like, but also a series of steps on the way there, um, things which are um, reformist in some aspects, but sort of collectively putting together all these things, it really dramatically transforms the situation. Um, and I think, you know, some of the key ones Helen mentioned, uh, you know, undoing um, the artificial uh, uh the artificial um, imposition of a particular family form, but then also building sort of capacities for uh, collectivization of it. So things like 24-7 universal childcare, it's a really good um, example, drawn from really, you know, 1970s feminist ideas. Um, it was a major movement back in the 1970s and then sort of got forgotten, um, but I think it absolutely needs to be reasserted today. Um, also push for more sort of public canteens. It's interesting, for instance, that, you know, the politicians in this country have something like 10 canteens in the Houses of Parliament, but the rest of us have to make do with Pret and things like that. Um, and then also things like long-term care. Um, Helen mentioned earlier about the, the sort of long-term care centers that autonomy has proposed, and I think this is a really good example of how this work can be you know, it can be sort of collectivized and shared in, you know, ways which are efficient, but also equitable, um, but also brought out of the home. So it's not just imposed upon one particular care, but also allows um, for a much better sharing of this work in a much more luxurious manner as well. Mm. Um, so there's all the sort of collectivization of work systems that we can build up to enable a much more efficient and better sharing of the work than what we currently have today. Um, so that's one thing. And then another aspect is um, the public luxury aspect. So, you know, making sure that these things are not just, again, basic services, but are actually things which are providing a certain form of luxury, um, whether it be luxurious libraries, luxurious um, long-term care. Um, all these things we can sort of add to them to make them um, the best collective services that are possible.
And where does labor organizing come into this? Because, you know, as we've talked about, it's not clear that there's like a single workplace. It's more like it's demand for a, for a new and better kind of workplace. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, you know, because so much of this work is increasingly pushed into the market, there is actually a capacity for organizing this labor in a way that was much more difficult when it was done by individual housewives in the home. Um, so you have, you know, gig workers on a platform, you have unions of domestic workers that are starting to emerge and organize and take this highly isolated work and start to show the commonalities between all the workers and push for uh, much better representation and much better working conditions. So I think there is, um, you know, it's absolutely crucial that this work isn't simply foisted off to a highly exploited workforce. Um, you know, the project for free time is the project for universal free time. It's not simply free time for the wealthy, which is what we have now. Um, so it has to require that um, domestic workers organizing and, and fighting for better conditions, particularly all the sorts of exclusions that they have in terms of legal systems. You know, the ways in which they can be exploited is just very unique um, um, for almost any sort of a, a job. Um, and then, yeah, same thing with childcare workers, which are extremely low paid, particularly in this country, um, despite the you know incredibly difficult and skilled work that's required of it. Um, so, yeah, all of these workers should be um, organizing and fighting for better conditions, and we should be offering our support as much as possible to um, for them to be able to get better working conditions as well. What about organizing in these unpaid sectors? Does does that have a role here or possibly in other sectors? Like how do we sort of join up these different dots? I think there's a shared benefit um, to people organizing around these forms of work, whether it be paid or unpaid. Um, you know, the challenge is that a sort of typical idea of a strike is incredibly difficult in the unpaid sector. So withdrawing your labor means, well, maybe your children aren't being fed and maybe they're not being you know, dressed properly in the morning and things like that. Um, so there's, there's real impacts which we wouldn't want to have um, on the people that we care about by withdrawing our care labor. Um, so I think it's incredibly difficult to think about the organization of this unpaid labor in a sort of traditional way but again, there can be coalitions built between people doing this unpaid labor with people doing the paid forms of it, along with people who are you know, pushing the state to provide particular aspects of it, along with people who are experimenting with alternative forms of providing this work as well. So you know, one thing we haven't really talked about is like cooperative forms of childcare, for instance. Mm. Um, you know, there's various experiments with um, sort of parents volunteering and providing some of this work along with people who are experts in it. Um, there's all sorts of different ways that we could do this in what we're doing today, which is, you know, in the UK is private equity owned childcare. Not ideal. Yes. As Nick was kind of getting at when he was talking about our proposals, one of the real challenges that we set ourselves with the book was to try and balance our more utopian or future-oriented instincts with an attentiveness to where we are and what we can do now. Um, and we, we've tried to kind of thread that through the conclusion of the book where we start to sort of set out our stall in terms of these proposals. And it's always kind of, it's always a, a difficult thing to do because, first of all, as 
Firestone always noted it's very exposing to try and advance any kind of positive thesis as soon as you get to the point of <laughs> offering any suggestions. You leave yourself very vulnerable to uh, critical savaging from, <laughs> from, from everywhere else. Um, but, you know, also because there's, in thinking about what we can do now and thinking about reforms, there's a tendency to think that you're, you're betraying a more radical political project by thinking in, t in the terms of your own historical moment rather than imagining your way out of it. So that, so one of the things that we're, we're trying to do is sort of weave together the, the, you know, the transcendental and the imminent and, you know, thinking about what we can do now versus what we might be able to do under radically difficult, different uh, conditions. But um, yeah, the, the, the key thing is is understanding that even in a post-work world, there are going to be different kinds of um, trade-offs, you know, that maybe the possibility of um, automating certain kinds of work will have devastating environmental consequences. And so there are competing norms, competing values, competing standards, and the sort of um, uh, collective working through of what our social commitments are, are going to be part of a post-work world. It was never going to be, you have to see post-work as part, as one element of a wider post-scarcity agenda. Um, and the, the aim of, of transforming the way that we, that we do work is only one part of this wider project of, of imagining a, a better world for everybody. And there, I think, is a lovely place to leave it. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs>